Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of IgniteCast from the Community Development Foundation. My name is Rory Tyre. I'm one of the hosts. I'm a co-founder of Go Innovation. Our other co-host, Judd Wilson, who's the vice president of the Chamber of Commerce with the Community Development Foundation, is actually not with me right now because I am in the country of Jordan interviewing uh, our next guest for the podcast, who happens to be my boss, the CEO of Go Innovation, Stedman Harrison. Hi, Stedman. How are you? Great. Yeah. Thank you for coming to Jordan. Thank you for coming not only to Amman, but up to the north of Jordan to Ajaloon. Yeah. So we are in these really beautiful mountains. It's sunny outside. Uh, it's breezy. It's beautiful. Um, Jordan is a beautiful country. And I am here specifically because I'm helping you to write a book. So this is actually really helpful for Ignitecast listeners because we've been going back through some significant leadership moments and stories from your life. And the point of Ignitecast is to tell compelling leadership stories and take away lessons that anyone listening can immediately apply in whatever context you're a leader, whether you have a title or not. So Stedman, I wonder, um, I met you in Ethiopia in 2015. Well, I guess I didn't meet you for the first time because you came to our wedding, but I didn't remember much from our wedding. But I got to spend a lot of time with you for the first time in Ethiopia, um, a really interesting country that plays a big role in your history as a leadership development practitioner, as a person. So um, talk to us, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit of your story. Mm, Well, I'm going to go back to my childhood. I love to tell the story about the fact that I met Alyssa when I was just a year old. So my next door neighbor was my wife. And I've known her now for 45 years. We just celebrated 24 years of marriage. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, which was a short drive from Tupelo and New Albany, where my family was from. Um, I definitely loved leadership development from a very early age. And that took me on a little bit of a quest. And that quest ended up landing in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, where I worked for the Center for Creative Leadership for about 20 years. Um, The last chapter of that uh, took me to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where you and I met. And yeah, coming back from Ethiopia to Northeast Mississippi was uh, a purposeful journey. Briefly, the Center for Creative Leadership, a lot of people may not necessarily know their name, but we are familiar with a lot of the things that they helped introduce into the mainstream in terms of assessment for development. Sure. And there's a story that people are even more familiar with, and that is the story of Vicks VapoRub. So most of us know Coca-Cola and we know Vicks from growing up. At some point we were introduced to those two products. Um, The founder of Vicks Corporation was actually from Greensboro, North Carolina, Smith Richardson, when they closed down and sold off Vicks um, to Procter & Gamble. Uh, It it was the opportunity for birthing the Center for Creative Leadership. They said that the biggest issue that they saw in the global market was the lack of leadership that spanned boundaries. And so that goes back to 1970. And a lot of great things came out of the Center for Creative Leadership. It started with a small team of five, literally upstairs of the pharmacy uh, where VIX was was manufactured downstairs in Greensboro. And yeah, since that time, they've had a great reach. Um, But having worked there for about 10 or 15 years, there were a number of us that were compelled to take what they were doing um, out of the niche of Fortune 50, Fortune 500, Mm -hmm. and really to a a larger society, to benefit society worldwide. Yeah. So you mentioned taking leadership development out of sort of the top of the pyramid to a bigger world. You talk a lot about base of pyramid. And for you, that that resulted in you opening an office for the Center for Creative Leadership that was based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Because that sounds... I mean, so if you're listening to this, I, I don't know what your mental models are of Ethiopia. Maybe for, for a lot of people, they think third world country, they think famine. 
Um, and Ethiopia is actually a huge, diverse country, and you opened a profitable leadership development office there. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So there's lots of threads. I'm going to pick on just a few of these, yeah. but we were trying to look beyond strategy. So a lot of the organizations listening today may think in the terms of three-year and five-year strategic plans. Yeah. Uh, we were looking at a, a, a strategic frontier mm -hmm. 10 years out and trying to deduce, okay, what's our relevance? And a yeah. lot of these organizations need to be thinking of relevance beyond the immediate things that we can predict. We partnered with IDEO and Continuum, a couple of design thinking organizations mm -hmm. simultaneously. And one of the things that they said was, hey, where are you doing deep immersions in markets that are different than the one that you're familiar with? Mm -hmm. I happened to be coming back from a short-term mission trip uh, to Uganda, and I was telling the stories of what I experienced at the grassroots in Africa, yeah. and it was invited to go back. And that just built momentum. So what happened was over two or three or four trips, we saw the opportunity in what is often called a blue ocean space. Mm -hmm. Very few competitors. Leadership development was new mm -hmm. um, to a large degree and breaking set with workshops and workshopitis, uh, which was becoming really popular. In other words, you could go to a hotel and you could just look at the list of people there. And there was a workshop on every technical disposition you can think yeah. of. Better binder, better PowerPoint. wash, three points. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So we were doing something that was unique in that market and it took off, it grew very rapidly. And yeah. as you know, we ended up reaching about 500,000 people in five years time. Golly, so you mentioned this idea of leadership essentials. Um, remind me how it was that you kind of came up with the idea, some of the first times that you and our friend Chuck Paulus, who works for the Center for Creative Leadership, came up with kind of on the back of a napkin, what it could look like to simplify research-based content so that you could put it in more people's hands. That's kind of where Leadership Essentials came from. Tell me more about that. So when we talk about a deep immersion, what we mean is rolling up your sleeves and getting into something that's a different space. Yeah. Um, we were familiar with high-tech classrooms where we could rely on PowerPoint. We knew that the power was gonna be on. Uh, we found ourselves in places like Uganda, Ethiopia, and Kenya, where as an example, power was not something we could rely on. Right. It could be raining outside and the water could actually be pouring down the insides of the walls. And so suddenly we found ourselves needing to rely on a different medium yep. uh, to transfer knowledge. And we, we went back to something that was familiar to us, which was flip charts. Mm -hmm. But a flip chart, which uh, these days, you know, Post-it has done a great job of giving us the, the sticky backs yep. that we can place on the walls. Uh, gave us this one page and we needed to convey as much knowledge in one page as possible. Mm -hmm. It forced us to simplicity. Yeah. So we look at companies like Apple and they've been very deliberate in trying to come up with a simple and elegant product. We were forced to take yeah. something out of pages and pages of research, big books, and you know, deduce a three-point uh, very easy to hold on to summary, maybe an icon. Yeah, so you said as much knowledge as possible in page. Really, it's what is the necessary, like the nugget of this piece of research. So emotional intelligence is an example. Most of people listening are familiar with the concept of EQ. How can I effectively put that on a single flip chart so that people walk away with it sort of burned in your brains? And the reason that's important is because if it's going to be relevant to my job, I need to be able to actually remember it and be able to act on it. So if it's like 10 points right on a PowerPoint, it's not really gonna be helpful to me when I'm like encountering conflict with a coworker. Yeah, so so many um, really great authors, Daniel Goleman being one of those, mm -hmm. um, have somewhere in their book this one 
frame, this one yeah. page that we could take out of the book and we could say, oh, this is really the summary, the elegant summary of what they're trying to, to get yeah. across to a larger world. If I just take the four frame, yeah. uh, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, social skill, I can take and build on that anywhere in the world. Yeah. And so Chuck Paulus, you mentioned, asked me one time, just across the river here in Israel, uh, in Tel Aviv, and he said, you know, Stephanie, what is an essential? Mm -hmm. And I pulled up in my phone, I had just taken pictures of these flip charts, yeah. and I gave him things like emotional intelligence, like feedback, um, concepts that would yeah. help us understand leadership and the cultures of leadership. And he said, oh, that's amazing. And I, I said at the same time, it's so simple that you can literally take a stick and you could draw it in the sand yeah, yeah, yeah. and describe it to somebody across a culture. And you've language. actually done that. And some of your programs in different parts of Africa, you've actually had to draw in the sand, which yeah. I think is pretty fascinating. So a key takeaway at this point I don't want to miss, I'll, if you're listening to this, um, you probably have situations in which you need to communicate things to people. You're trying to communicate information, teach information, motivate people to change. And I think there's some takeaways from this idea of leadership essentials that may help you as you think about how can I communicate more effectively. So I'm thinking of as an example, a rule of three. So we know from adult learning research and from our own experience that if you can put something in a rule of three, there's just something sticky about that. What are some other principles that you might say to someone listening who you know, works at a bank or, or is in middle management and they want to communicate more effectively? What's, what are some of these other principles from your experience? I think there's a power to putting something between you and another person. We don't think about it too often, but um, often it's a document. Um, the, the performance review is now between us. Um, this report that I didn't quite get perfect is now between us. But actually taking things that we would say, oh, I'm really familiar with a model, I'm talking from that model. Take the model, you mentioned back of the napkin, put it on some piece of paper and actually describe it. Use the space not only to help uh, communicate across the boundary between individuals, but through some sort of idea. Okay. So I mentioned feedback, situation, behavior, impact. Just helping that person on the other side of the table understand this is what I mean when I say feedback. A Such a powerful idea. Yeah. And then again, these icons, you know, something that helps us hold on to that. If I can draw it, if it's a three-legged stool, um, if it's uh, three rings that help me understand and unpack a concept. Those kinds of things, like a yeah. Venn diagram, become really sticky in the minds of the adult learner. Okay, so you opened this office in Addis Ababa. You brought, you were part of this movement, Leadership Beyond Boundaries, that brought leadership development to like 500,000 people. And since then, the number has continued to grow through a lot of other work that we've done. In 2015, you made the choice to move you and your family back to the U.S., to Northeast Mississippi, to work with Global Outreach. I moved to Mississippi from Chicago to join you in that work. And I, yeah, I agree, Tupelo, Northeast Mississippi has been surprising. Uh, one thing I've really enjoyed, which you listening to this podcast, you, you know because you're familiar with CDF, is there is a rich history of leadership and um, social innovation in, um, in and around Lee County in Northeast Mississippi, which has helped to make it such the strong community that it is today. And a lot of people are surprised. So Go Innovation is the company you and I have co-founded along with a couple of others. And... Um, the, I know when you talk about how Go Innovation came about, this movement Leadership Beyond Boundaries has grown and grown, and it's bigger than any one organization. You came to Global Outreach, this faith-based NGO, and I think you thought, okay, my development days are behind me, mm. um, but they weren't. People and, and there's this power of relationships. So you had built relationships, and what we've discovered is that relationship is a key to transformation. It's a key in the classroom. 
It's a key in leadership. And so out of a desire to keep building and expanding those leadership band boundaries relationships, Go Innovation was born. And so our organization, we design and deliver leadership solutions. We do coaching, all this stuff. But I'm curious, you know, the word relationship is kind of a buzzword. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think sometimes it kind of means everything and nothing. Like, does it just mean we're all supposed to be best friends at the office? You know, it's kind of yeah. ridiculous. And we would say no. But what is the power of relationship when you're trying to bring about transformation or vision casting or just have a healthier workplace culture? Like, why does relationship matter? So I, I think there's a two things that I would want to point to, and that is that in relationship, uh, we have the ability to speak a higher degree of candor. This is something mm-hmm. we talk about in our classrooms often. Yeah. But with a lack of relationship, I'm going to be slow to speak, uh, uncertain about how I'm going to be received. I'm going to hold back on a lot of things. May not be trust in the bank. Yeah. So that moves to the second point, which is trust. I think that once I have a higher degree of candor and I'm able to actually communicate more quickly, more freely, um, what I'm proving is we've got trust. Oftentimes that's borrowed. Uh, The the fact is that I came to Northeast Mississippi, I had trusted relationships and people were saying, hey, it took us time, it took us years in in some cases to build that trust. We wanna continue to cash in on that. And then again, we were able to introduce other people to the mix and that's borrowed trust. If I say to a person, this is my friend Rory Tyre, believe me, he's got a great coaching capability set, listen to him, they're gonna all of a sudden say, oh wait, I know Stedman, now I'm gonna transfer that trust over to Rory. It's the same thing that we do when we say, I have a good doctor, trust sure. me, go see this doctor. Sure, so one of the things we know from you know a lot of adult learning research and even neuroscience is that adults learn better in the context of relationship. And so um, for those of you listening, if you need to influence people, you're a manager, you're leading an organization, um, or even if you're just looking at your family or your church or, or whatever, um, you know, anything you can do to build meaningful relationships. And one of our favorite tools to do that is a tool called Social Identity that comes out of the Center for Creative Leadership. I wonder, could you walk us through that just really briefly? So this is a leadership essential and we can visualize it in the air. That's how simple these things are. And this is a tool to build relationship fast. So I think one myth is that meaningful relationship has to take months and months and sort of happen. Um, oh, that fly's really annoying, huh? It's a fly buzzing around our space we're recording. Um, so one of the myths is that relationship has to sort of happen organically and take forever. And and we've got research-based tools like Social Identity, this Leadership Essential, that prove otherwise. Can you walk us through that just briefly? Yeah, and maybe taking just one step back just to build towards that. So uh, we talked about the fact that relationship matters. We learn as adults better in the context of a relationship. If I read a book on social identity and I put it back on the shelf, I've learned something, but as soon as I take what I learned from that book and I talk to you about it, it just comes alive. Mm -hmm. So I I did, I read Kelly Hannum's book on social identity. Um, I, I read some of the history of social identity theory, but as soon as I say to you, hey, it's really simple. It's like three rings, if you would, that help us understand who you and I are. Mm-hmm. So my identity is couched in my given, my chosen, and my core. Mm-hmm. And I simply explain to you, givens are those things that I don't have any choice in. I didn't get a vote. I was literally born into a lot of this. Um, I was born on a certain date. Yep. I was given a name before I left the hospital. Yep. I had a gender. Um, I had a socioeconomic status that I was born into. Mm-hmm. My parents were educated to a certain degree. I had a mother tongue language. Yep. I was born in America. I have a blue passport. All of these givens yeah. suddenly influence all kinds of things at age 48, as an example. Uh, taking that one step further, the the chosens are things that we start to build. Mm-hmm. Around age 15, you and I, especially in uh, Global North, start to have all kinds of choice points. 
greater urge, like agency. Hmm. We have greater choice points. We have a higher degree of agency. Yeah. And what I mean by that is we start to make all kinds of choices early in our lives. Um, most of the world follows that age 15, 16, 17, 18 years of age. You know, we have hobbies. What we choose to do when no one is forcing us to do it. Yep. We choose an academic path. Uh, we choose a university that we want to go to. Our first career, we make a choice between two or three options. We take a certain job. All of a sudden, we start to build all of these things that are about our identity. Yep. Are we married? Are we single? Um, what sort of things do we do in terms of the, the time that we have? Are we part of groups, yeah. in groups and out groups? And there's this relationship between the given and the chosen too. So a lot of times what we're given really heavily influences what we're able to choose or what we want to choose or, or not. So sometimes we choose things in opposition to what we've been given. And so as you add that second layer, this interplay starts to happen as you're thinking about sure. it. Yeah. A lot of the controversial things that uh, come up in the context of social identity, uh, political preferences, uh -huh. um, religious preferences. Yeah. So you, you think about that, you know, your parents have a political party that they support. Uh, they come in uh, to our lives having brought with them some religious heritage. Yeah. Do we accept that? Do we build on it? Do we reject it? Does the pendulum swing in the other direction? Yeah. These are great questions to ask in terms of who I am. And then I love this concept of the core, the filter through which we put our most important decisions. Yeah. Um, there's a, a core set of values um, things that are precious to us and we think about those when we make a really important decision. Do I move from this city to another city? Well, it's going to impact my family and I think yeah. about it. Um, I am a person of faith. You know, have I prayed through this idea? Yeah. Um, I love development. Am I going to get more opportunity to develop people there or not? Those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Yeah. And so, you know, in facilitation, what we'll do is we'll draw these three rings, given chosen core from outer to inner. We'll have everybody draw their own. We'll fill ours out and others fill their own out. And then we actually pair people up and have them just sort of introduce themselves to each other using what we call the social identity map. And it's this amazing, like when the space of five minutes, you're explaining to someone the core values that drive some of your most important decisions, which in like typical office chit chat, you just would never get to. It just stays at a level. But the thing that we find is that people... I mean, like people really want to talk about this stuff. There's yeah. like a freedom in being able to say, this is something that matters deeply to me. And there's a challenge, I think, in people going, oh, like what does matter? Like I say that I'm about this, if I'm honest and look at my decisions over the past six months, is that really what's been driving my decision-making or is there something else that either I'm too ashamed to admit or I just wasn't aware of? Mm -hmm. So it's a really cool tool. I love, you know, if it's a group of 15 or if it's a group of 50, we typically ask everybody to stand up, find the person that you think is most yes. different than yourself most in the room. And quickly, again, they build these bridges, um, telling their life story yeah. through given, chosen, and core. And you're right, you know, when you work in relationship to other people, even living in community, you rarely get to the core. Yeah. I see all kinds of givens. Oh, they've got the same skin color as I have, or they don't. Yeah. Um, you know, they have the same accent as me, or they don't. Mm -hmm. I can listen to them and, and tell a lot of things about their given. I suddenly learn some things just watching them. Oh, I see the ring, they're married. Um, I see a, a religious icon on their yeah. t-shirt or a piece of jewelry, and I can say, well, maybe they're religious. I have to ask these questions mm -hmm. to test my assumptions or mental models. But I never really get to the core unless I build a relationship or we put that tool between us right. and talk through the tool to get to that point. Yeah. So I've done that with groups of people that I thought I knew pretty well and I always learned something new. Um, I always encourage people be candid on this because in your candor, you will unlock others candor, which will build, you know, better team culture. So if you're listening, feel free, use that tool, social identity, just three concentric circles, given, chosen and core. 
walk people through it, have them fill it out, and then have them find someone that's not like them and just introduce themselves using that social identity map and then switch the pairs up. That's a facilitation technique. You pair people up and then switch them up, have them do it again, and then bring them back and debrief. What did you think about this? What was it like to use this? Did you find anything unexpected that you had in common? A great opportunity to either build a bridge or reduce a barrier. Yep. And we find that these barriers just sneak up on us. So yeah, yeah building that bridge is a great gift. Yeah. So building relationships, I mean, we've continued to build a lot of relationships through our Go Innovation work. One of those relationships um, came kind of unexpectedly last December where you spent a little more than a week in Ethiopia connecting a lot of relational dots with different organizations that has resulted in Go Innovation being um, part of a, a recipient of a very large grant from the European Union to help the country of Ethiopia have a successful democratic election, I think in sometime in 2020 is still the hope. And then another one, um, a few years, it was like a five-year horizon. So leveraging leadership development to change an entire country, which most people think of leadership development as like, it's a perk of my job, or it's a class I'm forced to go through as part of my job. Um, so talk to us a little bit. What are some of your hopes and dreams for this work that like we're here in Jordan, you're on sabbatical. You guys tomorrow are flying to Ethiopia to live. So you're coming back to Ethiopia. So talk to us about that. Well, so there's always a, um, a history to these things. In 2011, I co-developed a curriculum called LEAD. Mm -hmm. And that curriculum has now been used in about 35 countries. In fact, you and I came here to Jordan and helped the Independent Electoral Commission and the, the Electoral Commissioner of this nation roll out their first training of trainers in Arabic. I mean, yep. these things sound uh, surreal at times, but you know, you and I had a wonderful co-trainer here who helped us get that across yes. uh, to a different context, to a different culture and across the language barrier. Um, here it is since 2011, we're going back to our roots. I never thought I was going to be able to use this curriculum in Ethiopia. We were working with the United Nations and with European Center for Electoral Support, these great organizations out there. And now we've got the opportunity to go back to the place where this began and to actually roll it out to the country uh, that we never dreamed would be embracing a democratic election on the horizon. Yeah, and so from Northeast Mississippi, we're impacting a, a low conflict uh, democratic solution for an election. Yeah, this next year and then again in 2025. Yeah, so let that, that sink in if you're listening. Like an organization that was founded in Northeast Mississippi is having this like direct impact on the global stage across the whole country of Ethiopia, which is a massive country. 100 million people, yeah. one of the second largest country actually in the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this will be their first genuinely democratic election in their history. We're talking about a country that's been around in some form for 3,000 years. So how is it that leadership development helps toward the end of a democratic society? Well, um, these, these are things that impact individuals. Uh, you mentioned the fact that we have the opportunity to have a societal impact. Individuals, groups and teams, organizations, societies. Those are the, the yep. levels of impact that we tend to have. Um, in a country, any country, if they actually have a democratic election, they have some national election board. Uh, in Ethiopia, the National Election Board of Ethiopia is led by a single individual. Yep. And in her case, she happens to have been exiled the last 10 years. She was imprisoned for five years before that in Ethiopia. She's coming back and she needs help. And so we come alongside to train yep. uh, the, the National Election Board themselves and then these multi-stakeholders. Mm. And really at the top of a nation, um, there's a core group of people influencing civil society, yep. influencing security, influencing the actual work of the opposition leaders leadership, having a voice, yeah. the media. So I just think it's so neat, you know, Go Innovation, we, and maybe if you're listening, you 
you think you, you work for an organization, you're a manager, you're a leader, and your company needs some help. So maybe you want to provide leadership development as a benefit to people as part of the perk of being part of your company. Maybe there's some conflict amongst your staff. Um, people need communication and management training. Uh, you know, you, you've got somebody who you think in 10 years, they're going to be the senior leadership of this company. What are we doing now to prepare them? How can we have some, some consultancy to help us with that? Go Innovation does all of that stuff. We do that in Northeast Mississippi and beyond, but these same principles can, I mean, we, we say they can change the world because we think if everybody, if we could scale this kind of helping people understand themselves and lead themselves better and then know others deeply and actually lead others uh, with empathy and effectiveness, we, we could see conflicts reduced. We could see the world change. And I just love that we're doing this stuff on a global stage from Northeast Mississippi. I We tell people about this, that we're based in Mississippi and we get kind of these weird looks and we have to explain, well, Tupelo, it's where Elvis was born. You know, <laughs> that's what people, <laughs> people know uh, where we're from. But yeah, so I, I, to, to bring the conversation back um, as we start to close it down, uh, we've talked about a lot of different concepts that are important to anyone who's listening. So we've talked about feedback, um, the importance of relationship. Uh, we've talked about a couple of tools. So situation, behavior, impact, that framework for having a feedback conversation. Social identity, that given, chosen, and core, that's a framework for building relationships fast. And high-performing teams tend to have high relationship because that makes trust and candor. I can speak freely. I would love to ask you to tell a story that's one of my favorite stories that I think kind of defines the foundation of our work, mm. why why we think this matters so much, the heart of it. And it's a story that involves your first time going to the continent of Africa mm. and, and uh, you happen to bring something precious with you. So I don't want to say anymore. So could you tell me that story, please? Yeah. When I went to the continent of Africa for the very first time, having traveled to Europe maybe, um, I still had all kinds of things that were tripping me up mental models, concerns that I have. I learned that these fears uh, were pretty universal. Most of us are concerned about our health. Um, we're concerned about the security. We're concerned about the wild animals that we've heard about or seen on National Geographic. And these things absorb a lot of our attention and time. I went rushing to the, the public health department. I remember telling the lady, I'm going to Uganda. And she was almost like curious, when I type this in to the computer, what will happen? And you know, it spit out like 12 pages of things that I needed to have that day if I was gonna get on this airplane. So I, I went limping out of there, you know, three shots in each leg and each arm uh, with another dose of medicine that I was supposed to take that was gonna help me with anti-malarial effects. And yeah, I got over there and, and my fears amped up. The very first night, uh, I was by myself and I was put in a guest house, but that guest house was backing up to the Mabira forest. I mean, here's this old growth forest and it has all the noises of the, the jungle, uh, little screeches that I just couldn't make out that sounded like women in the distance. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is intense. Um, and, and you know, this is a new experience for me. I'm going out to see the African sky and the um, sun setting, but I forget that it's at the equator. So like this sunset, uh, unlike Northeast Mississippi, where you can go out and enjoy it for an hour and a half, was done in 10 minutes. And I'm standing there in the pitch black, looking up at the stars, which were magnificent, but now realizing I've got to go in, there's no power, find some sort of lamp or light in order to get ready for bed, stumbling around in the darkness, find my headlamp, and just as I'm settling in to get underneath this mosquito net and try and calm myself down, a knock came at the door. And you know, my heart was about to jump out of my chest. So I go over to the door 
And, and you know, I had read about Joseph Kony. I had read about the Lord's Resistance Army that was roaming around in the north of Uganda. And when I opened the door, there is a guy who's nearly seven feet tall, dressed in all camo. And I think Joseph Kony has found me. This is the end. You know, I'm going to get dragged off into the bush and this is going to be it. Um, he was motioning to something I brought with me. You know, I had carried a few bags and, and one case, and that was a guitar case. And he was asking me to bring it out on the front porch. So I, I brought it out, uh, opened it slowly to make sure that, you know, he was aware that it was not an AK-47. Uh, and he, he motioned to hold the guitar. Uh, so he sits down on the front porch. And you got to imagine this guy in camouflage. I, I did see in the dark GSF, Good Shepherd's Fold. So he's security at this place that I'm staying, starting to calm down. And he starts to play the most beautiful music. Um, he had his eyes closed at times, you know, all up and down the fretboard of this guitar and, you know, humming and singing at times. And about 10 minutes later, he, he passes my guitar back to me. And I see in the dark with my headlamp, his face for the first time. And I catch the fact that he's got tears running down his cheek. Uh, he was about 60 years old at the time. I had to get to know him better. His name was Charles Silas Owat. And what Charles uh, helped me understand was that he had learned to play guitar 30 years before, but he never owned a guitar. He didn't have access to the tool. And so, you know, I let him borrow the guitar over the weeks that I was there, and I have a choice point when I go home. Do I take this guitar that was a sweet 16 gift from my mother, and do I take it back home to America, or do I leave it in his hands? Um, for those guitar aficionados, you know, it's my first Martin. Uh -huh. I, I, I had a love I, for I this guitar, pain, right? Yeah, I'm like, Martin. what do I do? <laughs> And I made the choice to leave it with him. And I said, hey, just teach some other people to play. Obviously, it meant a lot to you. I came back to the US and within about six months had an opportunity to start to frame a second trip back to Uganda. And when I went back nearly a year later, um, what I found was that that one group of people that I had spent so much time with, they wanted to host us again. Yep. Uh, the kids were dancing at the front gate. They ushered us into this multi-purpose room. I sat down in the front row uh, just to be greeted and, and welcomed back. And what I saw was Charles in the corner handing my guitar to this young boy, Paul Casada, who came mm -hmm. up to a microphone, sang three songs in three languages, and passed the guitar to another girl, Barbara, who passed it to another girl, Mercy. You just have to imagine 12 kids yeah. playing a concert with my guitar only about a year later. And that hit me that, oh my goodness, we have so many precious resources in our hands. Mm -hmm. And if we'll hold it lightly, if we'll put it in the right hands, in that case, it was Charles. And almost like the training a trainer's effect, if I will teach one person um, something that's really important, they can teach people that I'll never meet, that I'll never see. Uh, you know, taking that full, full forward. So now, 15 years later, Paul Casada um, has a music studio in Jinja. He sells guitars. It's his livelihood. Wow. I have no idea what the ripple effects will be of that. Yeah. But I love to have people like our listeners think about the impact that they can have with what they've got in their hands. Yeah. Um, hold it loosely, pay it forward, and see where those ripple effects take us. Mm, I love that story. Thank you for sharing that again. Well, Stebman, thanks for sitting here. Um, thank you for sharing that with our um, IgniteCast audience. And um, for those of you listening, I hope that something you've heard here uh, will help to spark and ignite your own leadership uh, wherever you are, whether you have a title or not. We believe that leaders are made, not born. And we believe that you don't need a title or permission to exercise effective leadership wherever you are. So be encouraged. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, go and be that leader that the people around you need. Thank you. Appreciate the time today.